This morning's reading will be from Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 14. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in, deceit, in deceitful schemes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brian. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you guys. Um, interesting, you know, Brian was turning the page there in the scriptures. We're living in a day when, when uh, page turning is becoming more and more obsolete. Have you noticed that? We, we sc- scroll and swipe now, so... I don't know what that means, and you probably don't care, so we'll just move on. Uh, that, that interview with Eric is just, that's just some amazing stuff. I'm telling you, engineers never cease to amaze me. I have no idea how they think this stuff up, but that's why I'm not an engineer, and they are, which is a really good thing. So anyway, um, getting to know Eric has been a blessing, and I would encourage you if you're interested in, in just any, he's a smart guy, just have coffee with him. Um, really good stuff. Um, every year around this time, we give a short little financial update. So aren't you blessed to be here on that particular day? Um, so a little bit of context. Uh, January, historically, for all the redemption congregations, um, which we're, 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 we've been around seven years now to have this history that we can look at, January is usually our lowest giving month of the year, which makes a lot of sense. And then we build a lot of momentum through April, and then May begins to fall off. And just like, um, just for the pattern, our May at Redemption Arcadia uh, was the lowest month in giving uh, since, um, since January. And then I got to tell you something, it's Phoenix, Arizona. June, July, and August tend to be really tough. Uh, and so w- what we do is we just try to survive the summer so that we can kind of come back in the fall. And that usually is how it works. But I also just, I have this marketplace background. I spent 20 years before I went into the ministry um, running businesses and looking at P&Ls. And so I have this sort of internal drive to be able to cash flow even during the toughest uh, months because I know that's important. So uh, just a little reminder that Uh, Though we may be going away during the summer, which I understand all of us want to get out of here during the summer, that makes sense. Um, Just want to remind you that we are still here and we still have uh, expenses, and so don't forget about us. Um, And, you know, uh, I am so good at Protestant guilt. You know, Cody just had his fourth child. We just want to make sure that we're able to pay him every every month. Okay, so just... Remember that. Okay, anyway, let's move back into um, Ephesians, this passage that Brian read this morning. Eight verses we're going through. There are going to be uh, Sundays coming up where we're going to look at one verse, maybe two verses. This is an eight-verse um, passage. Uh, we are into the application part of the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And 
Uh, because there is so much going on in this passage, I thought it would be kind of interesting to start um, and, and introduce uh, today's message uh, with this little idea about how to read Scripture. I've learned over the years, I've been a Christian for 31, 32 years, and I've learned over the years that when reading and rereading a biblical text, it is, first of all, essential to allow the text to speak to us and not us to the text. Our tendency is that we want to speak to the text and manipulate the text. And really, we need to let the text speak to us first and foremost, and then slow down, make some observations of the text. Now, th now this is hard for us because we want to read fast. We want to do everything fast. We want everything fast. We live in a very fast culture, but we need to slow down, make some observations of the text, and then ask questions of the text. Start to formulate questions that maybe uh, pop up to you. And here are some of the questions that you might ask. What appear to be the important themes in the section of Scripture that you're reading? Uh, what words are repeated? Generally, if you see words that are repeated, um, that indicates that that word is important. Last week, if you recall... Uh, we looked at a couple of verses where the word one was repeated seven times. I would argue that makes that idea of one very important. And we're going to see a little of that again this week, too. Uh, what does this verse or this paragraph or this chapter that we're reading mean in its original context? Try to think through the lens of the people who were there writing and reading the original text. What was life like for them? And then make this jump. What similarities might we have to the people who are receiving that text and even who wrote the text? And then how does this text, given its original meaning, apply to us today? Uh, our, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, is very fond of saying that we need to remember that God is timeless and a timeless God would never produce dated material. Uh, so this idea that the scriptures do not apply to us anymore actually put the eternal God in a box, and we can't do that. There is application in every biblical text uh, to us. And then lastly, you might ask this. How does this text uh, participate with the Holy Spirit to help transform my mind and my heart? Now, the things that you observe and the questions you ask in a text may be different than mine, which is understandable, because we have differences in age, in history, in experience, in relationship, in culture, in ethnicity, in gender, all of those things. The scholar Linda Alkoff calls this positionality. She's dedicated her life to studying this notion of positionality, that everybody stands in a different position in the world. And there are literally hundreds of factors that make up who each of us is, and each of those factors uh, causes us to see things from a different perspective and have different perceptions of reality. And that can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse depending on how uh, you use it. But C.S. Lewis, before Linda Alcoff ever started her work in, in a little section of his writings called uh, The Magician's Nephew, he writes this. What you see and hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. That's positionality. He's talking about positionality there in the 50s. 
Uh, it's one of the advantages of being a part of Redemption Church as a pastor. We have 10 congregations, and every Wednesday we get together at the Gilbert Congregation, all of the pastors, to have what's called our preaching collective, where we discuss the text that we're going to be all going through um, in 11 days. We do this 11 days out every week. So we looked at this text 11 days ago on Wednesday. And you get to hear the perspectives and the perceptions and the questions and the observations from all of these other pastors. It's really helpful. That's one of the uh, advantages of recognizing this positionality. Nevertheless, Everyone, not just pastors, should work through this exercise when you're reading scripture. And, and yes, it can take a lot more time than simply reading the Bible. I get that. But, but we need to remember that reading the Bible is not just for information, it is for transformation. And the best way to be transformed, to allow the Holy Spirit, who is the illuminator of scripture and who fills us, to allow the Holy Spirit to really begin to unpack and unveil these gems of wisdom for us is to slow down and let him do his work. And the effort of mining these gems from Scripture is worth it. So what I'm going to do is reread these eight verses, make a few comments along the way, and then I'll just give you five questions or observations uh, that are really driven by application that I found from uh, this text. So starting in verse 7, Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul starts verse 7 with the word but. That means that there's, it's a conjunction. It means that he's looking back at the verses before. So here you go. He's still talking about unity. He's still talking about the oneness in the body of Christ. That's still a major theme in this section. And so we have to move forward with that uh, understanding. And that word grace there, Usually we hear about grace as, as the grace that uh, empowers our salvation, uh, the grace by which we uh, live, but grace here actually means something a little bit different. It means, most of us understand it as a gift, a gift from the Holy Spirit, that's true. It's a power or ability that you have that adds value to the community of faith that you are a part of. It's a power or ability that you have that adds value to the faith or community that you are a part of. And this gift, this power, has been given by Spirit, by, by, by Jesus, by His Spirit. You and I don't will up this gift, this grace, or whatever they might be in our, in our life. We don't will them up by our strength. And this is important. We can work to improve them. God gives us, through His Holy Spirit, these gifts, these graces... And we can work to improve them, but the original platform that we have is, is just an empowering by uh, the Holy Spirit. It's from God, and that's why we use it to bless the family of God. So then you look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, and Paul decides to quote Psalm, loosely quote Psalm 68 here. When he, God, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, it, he starts by saying, it says. This is a common way that rabbis would speak of Scripture. They personify it. They, they, they want to make it real to the people who are reading it and hearing it. And here, like I said, Paul is referencing Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm that celebrates the sovereignty of God and his majestic, comprehensive ability to provide for and protect his people. God even ascended, and I think this is the reference in Psalm 68, he ascended to Mount Sinai to give the law to his people to provide 
for his people. This is, this is back in, in the Old Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament. But also, Jesus, uh, similarly, Jesus ascends in victory after his resurrection in order to sit at the right hand of the Father on behalf of us. And he's there interceding for us all the time. But there's this other area here. It says here also the collecting of captives. Now, what does that mean? Now, we can just race by it and not deal with it. That's one way to deal with it. But Jesus, Paul's talking, he's using Psalm 68 now to talk about Jesus, okay? So Jesus is collecting captives. What does that mean? Now, this reference is debated a lot. It's debated a lot. And if you want to have a deeper conversation about that, I'm open to having coffee with you. We could spend maybe an hour on um, this, which is about as long as a medium, grind, uh, medium uh, vanilla latte lasts. So anyway, uh, but, but let me just point out this. The, the one thing we know for sure is that what Paul is making, trying to make sure we understand is that Jesus reigns supreme. He is in supremacy over everything. He is sovereign over everything. It's a reference to that. But also we have to consider Jesus is victor as well. He is a victor. He's the victor. He has established a victory over Satan, sin, and death. And if you think about victory, wherever there is victory, wherever there's been a war and there is a spiritual war, wherever there's been a war, there are usually captives, and there are here too. And the primary captive is Satan. It's Satan. Now, he still roams today. This is what's hard for us. Jesus has this victory over Satan through his death and his resurrection. But he's still allowed to roam today. It's, it's what people call the already but not yet. We're already saved, but we're not quite there uh, to its fullness yet. But he's roaming, Satan is roaming in vanity. He knows he's already lost. And we know that ultimately, in the end, Satan is going to be bound and destroyed, and he needs to be. So I would say that's the primary way that this idea of captive is being talked about here. And then also, he, the victors are usually gift givers as well. And so Jesus is the gift. He's the ultimate gift giver, which is what Paul is talking about here. Uh, Jesus is a gift in that it's through him that we are saved, but also he gives us these gifts, these abilities, these charises that we get to use in the faith community for the benefit of the faith community. So continue reading. Verse 9, parenthetically, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Paul gives us a list here. If you read through Paul's letters, you see lots of lists. There are different kinds of lists. And, and it, the, listing things was a way that the ancients wrote a lot of stuff. This is very common. The one thing we need to know about ancient lists, though, is that they are rarely comprehensive. They're more representative. For example, the, the spiritual gifts of exhortation and discernment are not listed here, but they're listed in other places in the New Testament. Um, but I want to talk about a couple of these gifts um, because I think it might be important. We're not going to talk about them all, but there's that one in there that says shepherds. Um, we use the uh, ESV translation. Many of the other translations translate that as pastors. So which one is correct? 
Well, they both are. A pastor is a shepherd. A shepherd is a pastor. But, but, but specifically, the reason Paul uses this idea of shepherd here is, is because a shepherd is kind of different than a leader. You ever thought about why shepherds are emphasized way more in the Bible than leaders? I mean, we live in a culture where we're obsessed with leaders. You go into any bookstore, I know bookstores are, it's an old antiquated thing. I still occasionally run into them and go into them, okay? But you go into a bookstore and you can see just, just sections and sections and sections on leadership. Don't see a lot of books on good following, but lots of books on good leadership, okay? Why doesn't the Bible emphasize leadership the way we do in our culture? Um, well, a shepherd is a leader in many respects, right? But a shepherd is also much more than what most traditional leadership skills would be thinking about. A shepherd has the ability certainly to motivate and lead people, but their ability is more keenly focused on serving, providing, protecting, and teaching, and there is a difference. And the church needs leaders. The church definitely needs leaders. Paul talks about the gift of leadership in Romans chapter 12. He does. But he talks way more about the gift of shepherding because the greater need in the church is for shepherds. People who are shepherds, do inspire and motivate, or should, but they're also willing to serve and sacrifice. There's a really big difference there. And then that word prophets, we get hung up on that word prophets all the time. And we need to understand that when, when we're talking about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, we're not talking about future tellers or fortune tellers. We're not talking about that. I can gaze into the future. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Rather, a prophet, the one who has the gift of prophecy in a biblical context, primarily is one who can apply the word and wisdom of God to a person's life and then say something like this. I've seen this movie before, and here's where you are headed based on applying God's word and wisdom to your life and behavior. This is where you're going to end up. It's an educated understanding of the trajectory of somebody's behavior and their will taking them, okay? And then you uh, look at the rest of this uh, passage, 12 through 14, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So, verse 14, uh, ancient writers, this is very common again, ancient writers in all of the ancient traditions often contrasted infants, this notion of being an infant, um, with those who are mature and wise. And this is a metaphor. You, you, you might be 30 years old, but, but you might get called an infant because of the way you think or the way your emotions are, are, are wild. Uh, have you ever noticed how the younger we are, the more important fads and trends and crazes and the latest causes are to us? Paul would argue that that is actually a part of the lack of maturity and wisdom because you haven't you haven't seen life yet. You haven't seen the fact that things come and go. And what we're so obsessed with today, within six months, we're not even going to remember it anymore. 
and, and, and having the maturity to recognize these things that are coming at us so fast and, and are filled with so much popularity and everybody's talking about it and realizing, mm, this may not last. Now, that's not true of everything. One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, um, in, in, the, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, he used to say all the time, this computer thing is just a fad. And today, he says, and the jury's still out. We don't know yet. Okay? But generally, it's true. This stuff comes at us, and we get all excited about it. So Paul's making the point here that we need, to, we need the wisdom and maturity of the gospel to stay grounded. And we're going to get to... My fifth observation is going to have a lot to do with that. So here's my five things. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. I think this is interesting. Uh, in saying he ascended... What Jesus ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, uh, that he might fill all things. This is not suggesting that Jesus went into hell at some time. There are other places in the New Testament, arguably, that you can make that case. This is not one of them, but a lot of people seem to think that this is one of those places where you can say, see, Jesus descended at one point into hell. That's not. This, this verse, these two verses are talking about the one who came from heaven to earth. Paul even says, the earth, he clarifies there, and then returned to heaven in victory. And I just want you, this spurs some thoughts here. I want you to think about this. Uh, God created what? The heavens and the earth. He didn't create the heavens and hell. Think about that. So often when you and I think about the Bible, though, we set up the heavens and hell in opposition to each other, and actually God is setting up the heavens and earth in opposition to each other. He's going to restore the earth, but he actually sets up the heavens and the earth in opposition. He did not create hell. Hell is something that came after we humans introduced sin into the world. Now think about that. In effect, we created hell. Think about that. It got really quiet in here all of a sudden. And, and, and this, 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 I hear this all the time. Uh, it's a question that I think I've experienced for years now, and I don't think people really want an answer to it. Um, and I'm sorry, I might offend your sensibilities here, but I would even argue it's kind of a whiny question. You're really not interested in an answer, because there is an answer to this question. Here's the question. I hear it all the time. If God is such a loving God, why did he create a world with so much suffering? What's the answer? He didn't. We brought that in. We're the culprits. Now, these verses are about God's love for his creation and his mission to redeem it through his son. Here you go. Paul writes this in the second chapter of his letter to Philippians, church in Philippi. He starts this section with verse 5 where he says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Look at the world through the lens of Jesus, not through your lens. And then he gives the example of how we're supposed to look at the world. And it's an example of humility, submission, and gentleness. And he writes this. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. Isn't it interesting that God didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you and I as human beings, we're constantly trying to figure out how we can be God. Now, we don't say that out loud because we don't want people to talk about us behind our backs because we know that's just weird. But essentially, in our actions, that's what we're trying to do. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul Miller, the author Paul Miller, calls this the J-curve, that the way up is actually the way down. It's interesting to think about that. Bill Hybels wrote a great book called uh, Descending into Greatness, and it was all a commentary on that passage. Descending into greatness. We don't think like that, but that's the Bible. Here's the second thing. Building up the body of Christ. That, those words in verse 12, to equip, literally means to, to complete us. And this is yet another nod to the notion of one and the importance of every single member of the body of Christ. We all have a part in this. And these gifts, these abilities to serve the kingdom of God are given so that the bride of Christ might be complete. If you're not doing your part, if I'm not doing my part, and if you're not doing my part, we're not complete. It's true. Gifts, and here's the key to this, gifts are not for our adulation and exaltation, and this can become a problem in churches. Gifts are not for our adulation or exaltation, but for the faith community and for our neighbors. Uh, People in this world who truly value the idea of altruism and living for other people, there is no place that this is more real than in Christ and in his body. It's a whole purpose. But, but, But of course, here's the challenge of these gifts. Because pride and ego enters into this equation so easily. If you become really good at something, even though it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and you start to help develop that gift, and you start to get a lot of notice and accolades, and people start to write about you, and you're on the cover of Christianity Today, or whatever it is, that becomes a challenge. You know, it's the old saying, we begin to read our own press releases. So this becomes a tension. When, when, when we get really good at something, the tension becomes, all right, how do I remain humble and submissive and gentle in the midst of something that I can do pretty well? So that's the challenge, and we need to be aware of it. And here you go. That's why you and I need ruthless, ruthless self-awareness. Because all of us have blind spots. There's something called the Johari window. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. The Johari window was developed many years ago, but it's a helpful underst- uh, way to understand who we are. The Johari window says that there are four different, basically four different selves that exist inside of us. There's the open self. That's the self we're willing to show everybody. Then there's the hidden self. That's the self that we don't want anybody to see or anybody to know about it. There's the unknown self. That's the self that nobody knows about, not even ourselves. It's something that's true about us, but it's latent. It may come out later. It may not. And then there is the blind self. That's the most difficult one. The blind self is the self that other people know about us, but we don't. And that's why self-awareness is important. And that's why, hello, you need people speaking into your life. 
That's why a pastor needs a board of elders. That's why a CEO needs a board of directors, and even more than that, needs other people who are willing to speak into that CEO's life because we all have these blind spots. And they, the blind spots become especially acute when we get good at something. So we need to be careful of that. Here's observation question number three. Uh, verse 13, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What does unity in the faith look like? We've talked a lot about this. I want to hit it just briefly again. Does it mean that we're all Stepfords? Does it mean homogeneity? Does it mean uniformity? Not quite. It means that we agree that there is an authority and wisdom that's greater than ours, and so in humility, we strive together, understanding that God himself has gifted, wired, and assembled, and ornamented each one of us differently. It's the idea, again, that Jesus gives us diversity so that we can strive for unity. If we didn't have diversity, there would be no need for um, unity. We'd just all be conformed. Okay? And it means that in spite of our diversity, we willingly and humbly acknowledge and acquiesce to this greater good, which is God's. So this is Paul's whole purpose in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. All of Scripture is wonderful, but there are certain chapters and areas that we should be going back to over and over, and 1 Corinthians 12 is one of them. It's brilliant. And then what about this knowledge of the Son of God? In chapter 3, Paul mentions the unsearchable riches for Christ. Does that mean that we are to quit searching since they are unsearchable? Not at all. What he's saying by the unsearchable riches for Christ is that no matter how hard we search, we're always going to be able to develop and find new things about Jesus that are beautiful and wonderful and inspire awe that we should keep pursuing it. We're never going to unwrap this package completely. Have you ever noticed how, how fun something, no matter how fun something is, and we have fun stuff in our life, right? But no matter how fun something can be, eventually it'll get old. Yes, even golf can get old. Even eating organic eventually gets old. Trust me. Even binge-watching your favorite show gets old. Even, here you go, blasphemy, even churn ice cream can get old after a while. You've you got to mix in some donuts sooner or later, okay? You need that bread, all right? But with Jesus, there is absolutely no end to the joy and awe. No end. Um, I, I run into pastors all the time. I'm just awestruck by this. Uh, this is kind of a, a thought process that a lot of pastors have. I generally take a new call to be a lead pastor somewhere, and I'll stay there five to seven years because by that time, I've pretty much gone through my material. Really? I'm telling you, I, I, could, I could spend a hundred years, preach 52 Sundays a year, and not even scratch the surface of everything that's in here. Right now, I'm 59, and I'm getting kind of upset about the fact that there's so much in here I'm never going to get to with you guys. I'm beginning to see that light now. It drives me crazy. Here you go, number four, to mature manhood, maturity. This passage is a lot about maturity. You're going to see that, especially with number five. Now, this is funny, too. It's been argued, and I've been in the midst of some of these arguments. It's been argued that teaching, the teaching and learning of doctrine can be dangerous because that's where division starts. 
The teaching and learning of doctrine can be dangerous because that's where division starts. Here we go again with blaming an inanimate object for all the problems that we create, right? But that's what we do. It's just amusing to me. That's like saying that conflict's the real problem, not how we approach conflict. Uh, doctrine is not divisive. Here, here, here you go. Note takers, write this down. You need to write this down. Doctrine is not divisive. People are divisive. That's the problem. So maturity has to do with knowing Christ and his attributes of humility, gentleness, wisdom, and sacrifice. Maturity, com- maturity comes from the application of the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist is recorded saying, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. You want the greatest verse on wisdom, that's it right there. God is God and I'm going to be me. And this idea of maturity is actually a big deal in their culture, both in the Hebrew and Greek culture. There were rites of passages and celebrations for when uh, young people matured. And there was a cultural expectation that children would grow up. The idea that a teenager or a young adult in their culture would be idle was simply shameful. Well, Paul's saying there's a, there's a standard of maturity, and it's the knowledge of God, the life and sacrifice of his son, the father's wisdom, the discernment and understanding of the Holy Spirit, transformation and action. We talked about that last week. The Christian faith isn't much interested in keeping the followers of Jesus on milk. You and I should be snarling snarling for the meat of the gospel. Paul writes about this. The author of Hebrews writes about this as well. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's getting on them. You are still infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Hebrews chapter 5 says it this way. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, uh, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God has given us discernment, but we need to train that discernment. And we do that by reading and studying God's word, by being in community and by praying. So here's number five, the last one. Verse 14, no longer tossed to and fro by the schemes and the craftiness and the cunning of man. No longer tossed to and fro. I think this is the most important thing in this passage. You may not, others may not. I think this is, in our culture, this is the single most important part of this passage for application that we need to get at. Let me ask this question. Have you ever had thoughts, you ever had this experience, you have thoughts that are absolutely clear in your head, but when you try to articulate them, when you try to write them down or say them, Chuck's laughing right now, he's had this, okay, so you, you, and then you start to say it, and it's a mess. And people are looking at you like, what happened to you? Oh, happy hour. Okay, I get it now. Okay. You try to write it out, and it just becomes convoluted. But then an author or a speaker or a screenwriter 
comes along and communicates exactly what you're thinking, but does it in a way that's clear and winsome? Okay, Josh Butler did this for me recently in his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. I'm reading this book, and I mean like every page I'm turning, I'm going, oh, that's exactly right. And he says it so much better than I do. God has gifted him for this. God has gifted him for this. So let me just tell you, much of what I, and he, and he talks a lot about this idea of to and fro in this book. And so what I say here is, a lot of it is my own prayerful reflection and study on verse 14, but I have many of his quotes thrown in as well, and I'll read you those quotes. I think they're really good. So in the last 10 years, again, if you're in church world, you get this all the time. It has been asserted repeatedly. Essays have been written about it. People are talking about it. It's been re uh, asserted repeatedly in the last 10 years that religion is on the downswing. But it's really not. You need to understand religion is not on the downswing. It's simply migrated and evolved into something that looks a bit different but is religious nonetheless. Uh, it's what some people have turned, termed modern religion now. And modern religion's focus is this, the preeminent importance of being considered a good person. That's modern religion's focus, the preeminent importance of having, having other people consider you a good person, okay? Have you heard of this whole thing called virtue signaling? That's a big part of it. We say things to make sure that other people understand that we're a really good person, Okay? And today, being considered good has nothing to do with institutional religion, but is religious nonetheless because we've devoted our lives to it. Here's how Butler says it. Where I live, Portland, the social benchmarks for moral applause have, have more to do with whether one eats organic, rides their bike to work, or supports the correct humanitarian cause in Africa. Things like these, even good things that contribute to the flourishing of our world in a manner similar to many traditional religious works, comprise our contemporary bars of righteousness by which one's social capital is gauged. I'll talk a little bit about social capital. This evolution reveals that the cultural decline in institutional religion has simply meant the relocation, not the destruction, of social norms through which we pursue personal justification and social acceptance for our existence. That's good writing. He's been able to encapsulate that in one little paragraph. So this idea of social capital, we could talk a lot about that. If you want a really good excursus on social capital, about eight years ago, a guy named James Davidson Hunter wrote a wonderful book, long book, but wonderful book called To Change the World. Has anybody read? Okay, anyway. Pick up that book. There's about a, a nine-page um, essay in there on social capital. Essentially, in today's culture, you and I find our social capital, whether we admit it or not, we're into social capital. We find our social capital, in other words, the number of followers or friends we have on social media, our network of marketplace contacts, and our status and reputation in the public sphere based on our behavior and the causes we support. That social capital is just as valuable as our financial capital, our educational capital, our wisdom capital capital and our relationship capital. It has become our religion. And personal justification 
you got to know that that's just the antithesis of the gospel. It's the fact that we believe we can all save ourselves. It's humanism. It's, it's uh, the reformer, 600 years ago, Martin Luther wrote this. God created human beings in his image. And human beings have been returning the favor ever since. We have created God in our image now. It's a problem. And, and, and the desire for both social capital and personal justification are the new religious liturgy of our culture. And they are the result of you and I being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every, every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Butler writes it this way. The decline of institutional religion has not entailed the banishment of the gods. We still worship the big three gods, money, sex, and power. Only we worship them in a much more sophisticated, neutral-sounding way. Isn't that true? We've gotten sophisticated in how we do this, and we do it very neutral. See, we're worshiping without letting anybody know that we're really worshiping, okay? And there are still the prophets of these gods, Butler writes, the classics being Freud for sex, Marx for money, and Nietzsche for power. And our culture is littered with the sad remnants of those who have handed over their personhood in sacrificial devotion to the reign of these gods and prophets. Ultimately, social capital and self-justification will be measured as it always has been, as far as we're concerned, by sex, money, and power. And every new wind of public dogma, philosophy, or worldly wisdom is always, always, always a repackaging of the old gods. We're just constantly looking for new and acceptable ways to worship and serve these gods. Butler continues by writing this, Religious devotion is not dead in America. It has merely migrated to a new center. And we are the marks that the con artists of the new religion are luring. Now, here you go. Last time I'm going to quote him, it's kind of long, but this is absolutely brilliant. He has a, a practical, excellently illustrated example of what he's talking about right here. Here's what he writes. We say that religion is based in transcendent values that cannot be proven scientifically, while secular ideologies are based on concrete realities of our natural world. In other words, science. Okay? But he says, consider this. Capitalism orders and structures its reality around transcendent values such as the providential, invisible hand of the free market, while Christianity claims to be based in the concrete historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We say that religion is driven by utopian, otherworldly visions, while secular ideologies work out of the givenness of what is. But communism is clearly driven by a projected utopian vision of the future ideal society, while Confucianism accepts reality as given with an emphasis on practical virtues for everyday life. You ever thought about this stuff this way? We talk about how Christianity is centered in the, dedication, in the dedicated devotion to our leader, Jesus, Yet fascism was clearly dri driven by a far more maniacal, fanatical devotion to Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco, who were responsible for the murder of tens of millions of human beings. Whoa. Have you heard that lie that is repeated all the time? The only wars we've ever had in this world were driven by religion. It's a lie. There have been religious wars, certainly, but not all of them. And the worst ones haven't been driven by religion. 
We say, here, here he continues, we say religion is more prone to violent sectarianism while secular ideology is more prone to peaceful tolerance. But the greatest violence in the 20th century was perpetrated by atheist regimes and it is often proposed, correctly according to my research, Butler writes, that a significant reason for this violence was the lack of any transcendent restraint upon the human pursuit of power. You see why Paul brings this up? This is verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 4. We are prone to every wind, every sea change, every fabulous fad of doctrine, every cunning, and every scheme that is not the gospel. We just fall for it. Butler concludes, each of these ideologies ultimately faces the problem of idolatry. Each exalts something over God and seeks to order our world around it. Capitalism exalts the market, communism exalts the state, and nationalism exalts blood and soil, ethnic identity, and the land. And we need to understand, the market, the state, and ethnic identity can be very good things, but when exalted over God, they become damaging religious devotion, unleashing massive destruction wherever they are served. For God's kingdom to come, we must reject these ideologies as saviors and diligently pursue Jesus. And this passage in Ephesians highlights this great hope of Jesus. The church is called to grow as a unified body by the power we have already given to us in the resurrected Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit toward the full and perfect union and cosmic harmony that will characterize the passing of this fallen and broken age and the appearance of the new creation, the righteous city, the new Jerusalem. And that's why Paul begs us, do not twist in the wind. Plant your feet and your faith firmly in Jesus. He's the answer. He's the answer to everything. You're in a Bible study? Somebody asks you a question? Just say Jesus. You're going to get it right. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just thank you for uh, Josh Butler's work too, how you've worked through him to help illuminate these great truths. Uh, God, I pray that we would um, uh, reconcile in our hearts and our minds the reality of who your son is, that he is Lord and Savior, and that we would serve him and him only. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.